This week, the Comics Guys explain quality comics. Yes, and thank you, Ben. Uh, hopefully this is a quality episode about quality comics, who were one of the earlier comic book publishers. So, Darren, why don't you tell us about the people who uh, started up Quality Comics? Yeah, Quality Comics is the uh, is, is one of the Golden Age comics that like wound up contributing stuff to the DC universe as we know it today. But uh, at the time when they were creating these, they were a separate company and really kind of the last one that we haven't done one on um, of the contenders to be number one in the Golden Age, right? Like at different times, they were a very big seller and, you know, threatened DC, National, All-American, et cetera, as, uh, you know, like the best sellers. And then also Fawcett, right? Like this, this was the last one that was a contender. And Quality Comics was founded by a guy named Busy Arnold. His real name was Everett Arnold, but uh, everybody called him Busy. He'd gotten that uh, nickname in high school for uh, being a busybody and a gossip. Uh, he was born in uh, Providence in 1899. He went to Brown, uh, where he got a degree in economics. And after he graduated, he went to work for a printing press manufacturer. It was called R. Hohen Company. And our Hohen company sold printing presses to a bunch of printing companies. They actually sold the physical object, the physical presses. And he became the sales rep for the Northeast for that company. They sold printing presses all over the country. And so he was like the sales rep for like from New York North, basically. Um, and that allowed him to make friends and contacts with a bunch of printing companies because his job was to go there and convince them to, you know, like buy or upgrade their, their printing presses. Um, and he sold Eastern Color the presses that they used for the first comic book, right? Like the first real comic book of the what we think of when we say a comic book um, was called Famous Features, and it was by Eastern Color, and it came out in 1934. And that comic was run on presses that Busy Arnold had sold to them. Um, he was also, as a side gig while he was selling printing presses, uh, became a partner in a printing company called Greater Buffalo Press. Uh, and that was with a guy named Walter Kessler. Um, and he started doing that in 1930. And Greater Buffalo Press became one of the leading early color printers that was doing co uh, newspaper inserts, right? Like, so the, you know, the, the middle section of your paper that was kind of like stuck in uh, after the fact and was, you know, like sold nationwide that included like ads and comics and features and whatever, you know, those like national things like that for it. Uh, Greater Buffalo Press became one of the leading color printers that was making those. So that was kind of uh, Busy Arnold's first exposure to comics as a business, right? Was that he was like, you know, uh, in this business that was printing um, newspaper comics. So he and several other uh, people, uh, including Walter Kessler, um, decided that or thought that the comics business uh, starting around, you know, 35, 36 looked like a great idea to him. And he thought that what people were going to be interested in, the way the, the product that they would buy would be collections of newspaper strips that they already liked, 
right? Like nobody was going to buy a, you know, a, a, a comic book about a new character that like nobody had heard of. But if you put together a comic book that had six months worth of daily strips from a famous newspaper character, people would buy that, right? They were, that, that was a comfortable and familiar thing. And so he created a company uh, with Walter Kessler and a few other people uh, that uh, was named and the product was named The Comics Magazine. And in 1936, um, that, the, the first issue of The Comics Magazine came out. And what it was was just a collection of reprints of various features from the National Allied Syndicate. A National Allied was one of the big syndicates that you know created and sold newspaper strips to newspapers, you know, like around the country. And so he had a partnership with National Allied, where he would take some of their you know most popular comics and just put a few months worth at a time in a comic book uh, and sell those. Um, some of the features that they would put in the comics magazine were things that National Allied owned but had never successfully sold. Right? They wanted to like put this out in the comic to see if they could get uh, attention, uh, draw interest for some new features that hadn't been sold to a newspaper yet. So some of the things in comics magazine had not actually appeared in a newspaper. National Allied wanted them to. One of the features that was in the comics magazine was by uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who would go on to create Superman. They did a character called Dr. Mystic. And Dr. Mystic is a pulp, uh, you know, character, kind of a, a Dr. Occult-like character, right? Like he's got the, you know, he's a detective in a trench coat, basically, um, who deals with occult cases that have some magical element or something to them. So he's not really a superhero, but he's kind of in that uh you know like line of sort of superheroes that kind of like blurry area between pulp heroes and the first real superhero and so you can kind of give arnold credit for you know like being one of the first people to get one of kind of like the proto superheroes out onto the presses now dr mystic was not very popular he put it in comics magazine and still nobody picked it up for a newspaper um so obviously you know siegel and schuster had to go on and try something else which you know they did with superman um he was part of Comics Magazine for about a year and a half. Uh, and uh, then when he left that company in 1937, it went through several changes, and the Comics Magazine company eventually mutated into Centaur Publications, which would be another Golden Age uh, comic company that we will probably talk about in some future episode. Um, but Busy Arnold left that one and uh, went into business with a bunch of other newspaper syndicates uh, for to have a, an operation that he would run himself, basically. He was kind of, you know, he was 38 at this point and was, you know, ready to kind of like run a business himself. So he forms a new company that's going to be called Comic Favorites, Inc. Uh, and it would do pretty much the same thing where they would take, a, you know, a syndicate's comics and uh, republish them as, uh, as comic books. And so he goes into partnership with three different syndicates all at once, right? He's going to make his, his uh, comic book that he's going to put out will draw from, instead of one big syndicate, it would draw from three smaller syndicates. And those syndicates were the McNaught Syndicate, the Frank J. Markey Syndicate, and the Iowa Register and Tribune Syndicate. So those three syndicates and he were Comic Favorites, Inc., right? Um, he opens an office on Lexington Avenue, uh, directly across the street in New York City from the Chrysler Building. 
and starts putting together his first comic that he was responsible for on his own. And this is called Feature Funnies. And Feature Funnies, number one, came out in October 1937. And the big thing that it featured in it was Joe Palooka. And Joe Palooka was a very popular, uh, you know, comic strip in the newspaper, uh, kind of dense boxer, basically, and his, uh, you know, like family and wacky things that he would get into. Um, was, uh, you know, sold a lot, was in, in a lot of newspapers. It was one of the biggest sellers of the syndicates that he was working with. And so Feature Funnies has on its cover, you know, Joe Palooka, uh, you know, like punching a guy through the ropes of the ring. Um, the other features that it included were reprints of Mickey Finn, uh, Jane Arden, and Dixie Dugan, all of which were kind of like, uh, you know, drama strips, basically. They were soap operas or they were, you know, mysteries, that sort of thing. And uh, in the, he also then went out and kind of like purchased a bunch of short features to fill it out to make a full comic out of it. Um, and so the total in Feature Funnies is a 64-page comic that has 11 features and then 20 sub-features that are like one page or less, right? That's, so most of these things, most of the features were four or five pages long. And they were just a collection of, like I said, you know, three weeks, four weeks or whatever of a newspaper strip. Um, and then there would be all of these little kind of like one page specials that were like, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was there was in fact, they had a Ripley's ripoff that was called Strange As It Seems. Um, and so this got him into the business. Right. Famous Funnies uh, was a uh, w- w- was a success. And, uh, you know, he had a he had a comic company. Um, issue number two came out the same, uh, you know, pretty much looked the same as number one, similar, you know, just another month's worth of stuff. By issue number three, um, he had, they, they, the idea of new comics, new uh, um, series uh, based on characters that had not been in newspapers before had happened at other companies, right? If you go back to some of our other histories that we've talked about, over the course of 1937 is when the comics industry kind of like realizes, oh, wait, we could have a brand new thing. We could put out a thing ourselves. And so a couple of shops had opened up over the course of 1937, um, which basically were selling to syndicates the work of a collection of in-house artists and writers. Um, And they would just, you know, like churn out features, basically, and just sell them to comics publishers. And so uh, the two biggest ones in New York, the, the, the relevant ones uh, for the story, basically, are Harry H. Esler, uh, who was you know, basically the guy who invented this business model of getting six or eight artists and a couple of writers in one big office, basically, and just churning out all the comics they could make. Um, and then the second one was the I- Iger Eisner shop. And Iger Eisner, uh, Harry Chesler was first, uh, Iger Eisner was the best, right? Like Iger Eisner was the one that had a whole bunch of artists got their starts there. And it's very famous. Not all, I mean, obviously Eisner is Will Eisner, um, for whom, you know, like national comic books are, awards are, are, are named and the guy who created the spirit, et cetera, et cetera. And Iger, um, who was his partner in the shop that they did, uh, his family uh, be- went to Disney. 
and uh, you know the the current ownership uh, of Disney as a corporation is in the hands of the Iger family as kind of like the you know that's they, they've been the uh, executives there for fifty years, and those are um, pretty much like the the nieces of the nephews of the Iger who was a partner with uh, Will Eisner in this in this shop. So by issue number three uh, of uh, feature funnies. Busy had realized that you know this was this was an, uh, a business model that seemed to work, and so he went to uh, Eisner Iger and bought several new features to put in feature funnies. He certainly wasn't going to stop reprinting the popular newspaper comics that he had, right? Um, he still had four or five of them, but he chopped all of the less popular ones to make room for new characters, for brand new characters that he would be the only comic that you know the only place you could get these things. And one of the series that he bought was one of Will Eisner's earliest solo pieces, which was a pirate strip called Hawks of the Seas. And uh, that became an extremely popular. So number three of Feature Funnies is actually the hardest to get and the most valuable uh, of these early issues because it's got it's it's rare and it's uh, the first appearance of uh, one of Eisner's kind of like key strips. The other major new character that they brought in from the Eisner Iger shop was a character called the clock. And the clock was not new to feature funnies. Um, he was a, uh, the very first really masked comic book crime fighter. Um, the, the hero who wore a mask and fought crime and existed only in the comics, didn't come from a radio show, didn't come from a pulp magazine or anything, was originated in the comics, is a character called The Clock. Um, he's not terribly well-remembered, uh, you know, but he does predate Superman, Batman, etc., etc., and he's definitely a, you know, costumed crime fighter. He's really got a pretty strong argument for being one, the first comic book superhero. Um, the clock had first appeared in a comic called Funny Picture Stories in November 1936. It was created by a guy named Frank Brenner, who did both the writing and the art. Um, Funny Picture Stories, uh, number one, includes a story by the clock. Then he doesn't appear for several months. And he then appears in issues six through 11. Those are the first seven appearances of the clock as a character. And then that was Funny Pages was published by a company called Comic Magazine Company. That company was uh, bought out uh, by a company called Ultem that would also themselves go into becoming Centaur. So all of these, this is a very kind of incestuous operation with a lot of people who knew each other and a lot of people who worked with each other under various company names. Um, but Ultem uh, promptly ran out of money after taking over Comic Magazine Company within like literally like months. And so they sold a bunch of their features to Busy Arnold. And he put those characters into, uh, into uh, uh, Feature Funnies. So Feature Funnies number three, not only has the Eisner strip in it, but it's got the clocks starting from his eighth appearance, basically. And the clock is uh, wealthy playboy, Brian O'Brien, um, who is uh, has a has an underground headquarters, uh, you know, where from which he you know launches his uh, his his mission against crime. He's got a very sort of like shadow style, uh, you know, like the 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 underworld fears me sort of thing um, with you know attitude to it. And he has a uh, his underground headquarters has a torture chamber 
in it, right? And it's full of all of these like implements of torture that you never actually see him use, but he threatens people with it all the time. <laughs> right he's got like a you know uh uh, uh you know the big uh, spiky coffin and he's got you know like fire brands and he's got chains on the wall and all kinds of other stuff um and he will frequently capture bad guys and bring them down there and threaten to torture them and they always give up so he never actually tortures anybody and the comic manages to remain you know sort of quote unquote for kids um he is also uh, a master hypnotist Right. And so he is very good at, uh, you know, like kind of uh, uh, convincing bad guys to do things that he wants or to talk to, you know, like give up their secrets or whatever by hypnotizing them. So does he really kind of count as a superhero? Are those superpowers? I mean, his hypnotism is super good and can do all sorts of things that real world hypnotism can't do. So does he count as a superpowered character? I mean, he never acts like he has superpowers. Um, he learns hypnotism. He didn't, uh, you know, like acquire it as a power or anything. So whether or not he counts as the first superhero is kind of like a matter to be debated. Um, he had a business card that he would hand out, kind of like the saint, basically, that, uh, that, that simply said, the clock has struck. And he would leave it behind at crime scenes along with like tied up villains and stuff for the, for the police to capture. It's a fantastic catch line. The clock has struck. The clock has struck. Yeah, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Brenner was not a great writer, and he's certainly not a great artist. If you look at his stuff, it looks very primitive. Um, but it's not notably worse than, say, you know, Schuster once his eyes started going, right? So, um, you know, it, it's certainly very readable. Um, and the character, uh, the clock, uh, has continued to appear off and on by several different uh, uh, publishers of it because it became public domain eventually. Um, the other notable thing about issue number three of, uh, of, of feature is, uh, the first appearances in comic books of Rube, Rube Goldberg cartoons and Rube Goldberg was already relatively famous, uh, for his newspaper strips and his newspaper cartoons that included like his Rube Goldberg devices and that sort of thing. Um, all of those kind of, you know, like gag gadgets that were just insanely complicated to do some really simple thing at the end right um those strips were already famous and so uh, he had the right to reprint a bunch of those that came with his relationship with the with the syndicates and so number three is the first comic that includes the rube goldberg cartoons as well um feature funnies immediately right right around its third or fourth issue was sued by Eastern Color, uh, the same company that, uh, that that Busy had worked with, because they said that the name was too close to their number one comic title, which was called Famous Funnies. And they went to court, uh, and in which Arnold basically made the argument that uh, the term funnies existed for the comics way before Famous Funnies existed, right? Like that that uh, that uh, Eastern had not created the term funnies to refer to comics. And so therefore he could use the, ter- the word just as easily as anybody else. They had no right to actually claim that feature funnies was too close to famous funnies. Uh, and so Arnold won the case with no damages and Eastern actually had to pay his legal fees for, uh, for showing up. So this one comic goes on for a couple of years, right? It's the only title that they are doing. Um, and uh, Arnold, uh, gets to 1939, 
his one comic is, you know, is, is selling pretty well. And he's got still got all of these other businesses that he's had going on, right? Like, I mean, he hasn't, he didn't quit doing, uh, selling presses or anything like that to do this job, right? It was just one of his kind of like side hustles, basically. Um, and so he gets the, the, the comic is selling well enough that by 1939, he and his two closest friends in the company who were the Cowles brothers, John and Gardner Cowles, who were the guys from the uh, Iowa Register and Tribune syndicate of the three that they were, you know, the three syndicates that had joined in. He was friends with them personally, and they decided to buy out the other two syndicates and basically make IRT the only syndicate that was providing them stuff. And Busy Arnold would be a 50% owner of the company, and the Cowles brothers would be the other 50% owner of the company. And so Arnold is now kind of like getting more serious about this comic book, right? Like he thinks the comics are, you know, they're, they're a big thing. By 1939, Superman has come out and, you know, is selling great guns around the, uh, around the country. And he's got, a, he's got a comic, you know, it's been out for 20 issues or so, but it's, it, it's doing okay. He doesn't have a superhero really, except for the clock, right? And the clock is not that big a seller compared to the early stuff that DC is doing and the other immediate rivals to Superman that come out. Um, at the same time, he's Arnold is looking at the business and realizing how much profit he is losing by going through the houses, right? Because the, when he hires, when he gets a, a feature from Iger Eisner or from Harry Chesler or from any of the other ones that have sprung up around them since then, he, he's paying a middleman, right? Like he pays the house and then the house pays the artists and the writers. Um, and Arnold realizes like, if I'm going to make this any bigger, if I'm going to, you know, start publishing more comics on my own, I should cut out the middleman, right? Like I should just hire some of these people straight up, right. And like bring them into my office. So he starts kind of like figuring out how he's going to do that. So in May of 1939, he changes the name of feature funnies to feature comics. And, uh, because he's, Funnies is starting to sound a little pejorative to him, right? Like, yes, a couple of his titles are comedy, but he's got a bunch of other things going on in there. And calling some of his drama stuff funnies makes it sound like it's for kids, right? Um, and so he adds, uh, he, well, first he signs another big name to be another uh, syndicated strip where he gets the rights to the Charlie Chan uh, strip. Which is another big one. IRNT uh, basically like signed it for him and gave him the comic book rights to it as part of their business. So starting in August of '39, Feature Comics features Charlie Chan as well as Joe Paluca. Um, and then like you know the clock is like the fourth or fifth title in there, and they're only kind of like real superhero thing. Um, in with issue number twenty-seven, which is December of 1939, he hires Will Eisner. Uh, himself, uh, like away from his own shop, basically, and like pays him directly for this um, to do a character that he does with uh, Lou Fine as the artist, and that character is Dollman, and Dollman is absolutely a superhero, right? Like, there's no question, and he's you know like one of the very earliest. He's he's you know within that first uh, year or so, year and a half after Superman, he's one of the you know like the very first guns there, and Dollman is the first shrinking superhero. There's no character before him who had the, the power to shrink. That, that was his superpower. 
and he is uh, chemist uh, Daryl Dane, who you know like uh, takes uh, you know like these mysterious chemicals that allow him to shrink to be only a few inches tall, but like retain his you know ordinary human strength at that size. So Eisner and Fine get to do a lot of kind of like fun perspective shots. Um, there's a lot of uh, Dollman, you know, like will frequently like fly a model plane and that sort of thing, and you know, like have adventures where he has to like you know fight a full size dog or something like that, right? Like the the threats were pretty like low scale, um, but then he would also have these assorted, you know, kind of like uh, uh, Dick Tracy style, you know, grotesque mobsters and that sort of thing as his bad guys, um, and Dollman becomes very popular. It's, you know, like Will Eisner at his, you know, kind of like at, at his lighthearted funniness, you know, sort of thing. Um, and the character becomes a fairly big deal. Uh, within a couple of months, uh, he takes Clock out of feature to put it in another comic, which we will talk about in a moment. And the Charlie Chan license goes away because after a year because uh, Busy Arnold decides, you know, I don't need to pay this much money uh, and this much of a you know of a licensing fee when I've got my own stuff that looks like it's moving pretty well that looks like it's ready to move, um, so he stops paying for Chan and Charlie Chan goes to Columbia and has a whole new series over there, um, and so Dollman becomes the new lead of Feature Comics, and there's a new set of backups that are pretty much all Will Eisner creations either from Eisner Iger or from himself directly. Uh, and once again, they are a wide range. They're not just superhero stuff. He's got a you know sci-fi character called the Ace of Space, and he's got another pirate series that's called Captain Fortune, and he's got Rusty Ryan who's a detective, and he's got all of these other kind of like pulpy heroes. Um, but Dollman is the lead, and Dollman is the main character on the cover, and this is the character that they're kind of uh, you know like the, that that they're sticking with. Dollman will stay uh, the lead of this strip for more than nine years and become one of quality's most well-known characters. He's almost completely forgotten today. Um, he did come back in the seventies as part of the freedom fighters, which we'll talk about in the, you know, later on in this story, basically. Um, but that character was a very strong seller in the forties that has almost entirely been uh, 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 forgotten. Um, feature continues to run through uh you know a, a monthly basically even as he's adding these other strips that were that were these other comics that we'll talk about um lou fine leaves dollman uh and uh somewhere around in 1941 reed crandall takes over the art for it and reed crandall is one of the great golden age um artists who will become incredibly famous for his stuff. He did the uh, Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, for Fawcett, and he also did the Blackhawks. And so he has a very kind of like mannered style that is, um, you know, will be extremely popular at the time. And he is probably my personal favorite all-time Golden Age artist. Um, you know, my love for Jack Kirby <laughs> put to the side, basically. But Reed Crandall is the greatest craftsman, I think, of 1940s comics. Um, additional other characters that will appear in feature comics uh, as backups to Dollman. Um, for him. The most notable one is the first superheroine by Quality, which is a character called Spider Widow. And Spider Widow is kind of a ripoff of Timely's Black Widow character. And if you remember from our Black Widow series, the original Black Widow, the first Black Widow series from the Golden Age, has nothing to do with Russia or spies or, you know, any of the Natasha Romanoff or any of that stuff. Um, 
Black Widow is in fact a a woman who dies and is sent back to Earth by Satan to collect the souls of evil people and like you know deliver them to hell basically. Um, and it's you know it's scary. It's you know it it's weird um, and it's a it, it, it's kind of awesome. Spider Widow is in fact kind of like a ripoff of it, which leaves out Satan. She's just a ordinary, you know, person, uh, an ordinary woman, like detective, basically, who dresses up as a uh, an old hag, right? Like as a witch, basically, um, and uses that as her shtick to be kind of like a mystery woman hero. Um, but she's the first female lead character that Quality will ever do, and she gets a uh, male sidekick, another superhero, uh, a guy called Raven who uh, doesn't have any powers, but he's got a wingsuit. He's got a suit with like a wings attached to the back that lets him fly. And he's in love with Spider-Widow. And so he's like the love-struck sidekick. He's like the comic relief to the actual like serious, uh, you know, uh, uh, skillful, qualified uh, female hero lead. And there really weren't any others of those uh, in the time period. Right. Like it's, you know, we had to, we had other femme fatale characters, but the idea of a female lead, a superheroine basically, who had a clumsy, funny male sidekick was pretty much unique uh, to the period and was, uh, you know, that was the, the one of the, the second tier features for feature uh, that was uh, um, created for that series. So, feature as a, as a title in 1939 starts doing really well, right? Dollman's a hit, uh, you know, it, it's moving. And, uh, and, and Busy Arnold has always wanted to have a, uh, you know, a, a additional titles. So he starts a second comic uh, for, you know, the, com- the company that will be called uh, eventually Quality. They still aren't using the name Quality yet. Um, and he goes back to Eisner Eiger and to Chesler and buys a couple more uh, series. Uh, for his new title, which will be called Smash Comics. And you can always tell a Busy Arnold title because they have those great kind of, uh, you know, percussive names, right? Like after after feature, all of the titles will be, you know, Smash and Crack and Hit. And, you know, it's a, it's a great, uh, uh, great theme, basically, for his title. So Smash Comics comes out. The first issue of that is in August of 39. Um, that features... Um, a spy series by Will Eisner again called Espionage, uh, that is very well thought of, you know, like later on, and a character called Bozo the Robot, uh, who is once again kind of a superhero. Um, the lead character of that series is actually uh, brilliant scientist Hugh Hazard, and Hugh Hazard has invented a robot that he uses to fight crime. So Hugh Hazard is, you know, like the the, the human lead of the of, of the series. And the guy who does most of the investigating, but once he finds out that there's a crime or something going on, he sends Bozo the robot uh, to go deal with it. And Bozo the robot is obviously superhumanly strong and bulletproof and can you know run faster than a car, et cetera, et cetera. And so like the robot does all the superhuman stuff. Um, the other feature is by a guy named Art Panagian, who was a discovery, a young discovery of Eisner Eiger. Um, and he creates a character who is called in his first uh, appearance Hooded Justice. So if you're familiar with Watchmen, this is where that name comes from. Um, and the character is, in fact, uh, you know, has a has a you know hood mask 
um and uh uh you know like a he doesn't have a rope for for a collar but he's got like the his collar is held together uh by a length of rope right so he's got a cape actually for the you know for the the cloak and the hood as well um and he does not keep that name which is why the name is available for alan moore to use it later on in watchmen uh, by his second appearance, the character has acquired the power to become invisible, which he didn't have in his first story. It literally happens in the plot of issue number two. Um, and from that point on, the character is referred to as the Invisible Hood. And that's how he will stay for the three years that he is a character uh, to uh, um, you know, as a feature within Smash. Um, Smash is a success. Uh, about a year in, in 1940, they you know shuffle the lineup a bit a bit, and they add uh, a character called Magno uh, by Les Gustafson. And Magno is Tom Dalton. He is a lineman, uh, you know, like working on electrical power lines, and he gets ac- accidentally electrocuted with 10,000 volts of direct current. And as he's lying there on a gra- on the ground. One of his coworkers says, quick, the only way to save him is to jolt him again with 10,000 volts of alternating current, of AC, which they do, and it brings him back to life. Comic book physics is wonderful, is a wonderful thing. Not only does he come back to life, but now because of his consecutive exposures to 10,000 volts of DC followed by 10,000 volts of AC, he now has the power to control electricity and magnetism. And he becomes a superhero under the name of Magno. Um, Gustafsson, the character was owned by Arnold, but Gustafsson uh, was friendly with Arnold. And basically, he worked out a deal after a couple of years of, uh, or not even two years, it's less than a full year, of Magno appearing in Smash. Gustafsson got a job offer, basically, to go over to work for Ace Comics. and basically asked to like buy out the character from Busy Arnold. And since Magno wasn't really that big a feature um, compared to some of the other characters that they had at the time for it, uh, Arnold basically said, sure, cut me a check and you can own this character. And so Magno moved over to Ace Comics. Um, the, uh, when Ace Comics went out of business, Magno's rights reverted back to Arnold. And so uh, Magno was a character that was owned but not used by Quality Comics after that point. The other feature that starts in Smash is a Lou Fine solo creation without Will Eisner this time, and that's the Ray. Uh, and you probably are familiar with the modern versions of the Ray, but the Golden Age version of the Ray is uh, Happy Terrell, who is a newspaper man, he's a reporter, and he is a reporter who accidentally goes up in a uh, an experimental strato balloon, a balloon that's going to carry him above the stratosphere to like look at weather uh, and do all sorts of scientific experiments, uh, you know, like high above the Earth. And uh, he winds up in that balloon as a reporter uh, reporting on it. And the balloon is caught in like weird cosmic light some sort of energy storm from outer space or something. And so uh, Happy Terrell winds up, uh, you know, successfully after landing the balloon, uh, discovers that he has like light and electricity powers. He can fly, he can literally turn into a beam of light and fly around as a beam of light at the speed of light. Um, And then he can also like, you know, shoot blinding beams of energy or electricity or that sort of thing. Um, And the ray becomes a, a, a big hit 
because mostly because of the good fine, the quality Lufine art. Um, and so by late 1940, the Ray is the cover character with Bozo the Robot and the Invisible Hood and occasionally Magno as backups um, in Smash. Um, Smash will be the home of several other uh, characters o- over the course of the next few years. Um, they will have, uh, starting with issue number 18, it includes Midnight, which is uh, Jack Cole uh, basically doing a ripoff of Will Eisner's Spirit uh, that we'll talk about Spirit uh, uh, later on. But basically, he's just a, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's a superhero. He's a, I mean, wears a mask, but he also wears, you know, like a suit and a hat and gloves, right? And, uh, you know, he's dressed like an ordinary guy, basically, except for his mask. Um, and Midnight is a radio announcer for WXAM. And, uh, you know, at night after, you know, like reporting the crime news, basically on the radio, he goes out to, you know, solve crimes. Um, Eisner's version of the spirit was a very kind of like international pulp hero. He did a lot of urban crime stories and he did a, this wide range of stuff. The Jack Cole version of that character starring Midnight is much goofier and much more kind of like fantastic, right? His villains actually have magical powers and he has a monkey sidekick, uh, you know, like at different times. In the last issue of uh, of Smash that Cole did with, for Midnight, which is in December, 1942, um, he Midnight dies and goes to hell. Actually, he tries to, he goes to heaven and tells heaven that he doesn't want to go to into heaven because Satan is still out there. And like, what better challenge for a great crime fighter, uh, you know, to face off with uh, than Satan? So God agrees to send him to hell, where he beats the snot out of Satan um, and is basically rewarded by for beating up Satan by being allowed to come back to life. So he doesn't actually die or he comes back from being dead. That's the kind of like, you know, nutty silliness, basically, that uh, uh, Cole was doing, uh, you know, kind of like that was that was a ripoff, basically, of spirit. Um, the series also had uh, a character called the Jester, where a rookie cop, Chuck Lane, learns that he is, uh, you know, his family basically is descended from a line of court jesters. And this inspires him to put on a court jester costume with, you know, bells and pointy shoes and a, you know, mask and a hood and all kinds of stuff. Um, and he goes out and fights crime dressed up like a jester. That's pretty much the only, you know, premise of the character. And yet somehow he lasts for 64 issues, uh, about eight pages at a time of just that's pretty much all he is. Um, there's two other superheroines who appear in Smash um, for the first time that are featured in Smash. One is called Wildfire. And Wildfire, uh, young girl Carol Martin, is orphaned by a forest fire, kills her parents. Um, And uh, when the fire is about to take her as a small child, she is instead rescued by a mysterious mystical being known as the Lord of Fire, who kind of takes pity on her uh, and brings her in, saves her from the forest fire, and raises her himself in his mystical realm of fire, basically, uh, where she winds up getting all sorts of fire-related powers. Um, when DC acquires the quality characters, Roy Thomas was doing All-Star Squadron and very much wanted to bring back Wildfire to use as a character. He thought she was a really cool... First of all, he was short on female characters, and thought that a, a woman, a superheroine character with fire powers would fit into the All-Star Squadron nicely. Um, and the editors at the time 
report, uh, Julie Schwartz primarily said, Legion of Superheroes already has a character called Wildfire. If we have you using a character called Wildfire too, that's just going to confuse people. This is DC. There's a lot of characters with the same names, but somehow this was the one that Julie Schwartz would not allow to like go forward. So having already written a couple of stories featuring Wildfire in them, Roy Thomas had to go back and basically uh, create the character of Firebrand uh, as a, you know, the, the, to use the name Firebrand again, basically to get rid of the male Firebrand, use the female character using that name who became a feature of All-Star Squadron for the rest of its run of one of the, the lead characters. Firebrand in the comics was supposed to be Wildfire, but uh, Schwartz wouldn't let, her use the, let them use the name. Um, the other character, the other uh, superheroine in Smash was Lady Luck. And Lady Luck was part of the Spirit Quarterly, which I think we will get into next episode, basically, but was one of the Spirit Quarterly characters that was created and owned by Will Eisner and Busy Arnold themselves. It was not owned by Quality. Um, it was a separate line, a separate business that Busy and Will ran themselves, basically, uh, that appeared in newspaper strips as part of the Spirit section that was syndicated. And so... Uh, uh, while the spirit was appearing in other comics, Lee Luck, which was kind of like his backup in the newspapers, uh, appeared in uh, Smash comics and appeared for years uh, in the title. Um, Lady Luck is basically a detective, Brenda Banks. Um, she doesn't have any powers. She has a mask and she has a gun and she goes out and gets into it, you know, like pulpy level adventures. Um, very rarely deals with any kind of like super powered bad guys or anything. Uh, but that was the lineup, basically, that carried Smash uh, through the war into, uh, you know, the early 50s, uh, which we will have to get to. Um, but that gives us, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the first two titles that um, Quality ran. And you can see where they're building up a stable, right? Like there's an entire collection of these characters uh, over the course of years that they're building into a universe and i think uh in next episode we will talk about that universe and the other characters that are important to it yep. thank you so much for the education darren oh not um, at all i love these guys these are they're, they're some of the wackiest characters who've ever been created yeah they have all sound very interesting so yeah join us next time and we will talk about more quality comics uh i've been steve tasker and i'm darren watts have a good night. Thanks for coming.